Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 6th of June, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, we'll get kicked off with uh, with Boris. And is Boris going to be leader for very much longer? Well, let's see what Graham Brady had to say this morning. The threshold of 15% of the parliamentary party seeking a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister has been passed. Therefore, a vote of confidence will take place uh, within the rules of the 1922 committee. That vote will take place this evening in the House of Commons between 6 and 8 o'clock. And we will announce the result shortly thereafter. Uh, there will be arrangements for proxy votes for any colleagues who can't be present in person uh, in Westminster and will notify colleagues of those arrangements in the near future. So Graham Brady, of course, chairman of the 1922 committee, they make these kinds of decisions. So there we go. Boris is going to face a no confidence vote. But I wanted to sort of get a bit behind what's going on here rather than just having a look at uh, at the shenanigans in Parliament. But if we look at the Daily Express, I'm just going to read a little bit from one of their articles uh, from yesterday, that a group of major Tory donors and rebel MPs plan to launch Operation Boot Boris this week in a bid to persuade grassroots Conservative members to help force the Prime Minister out. And the Express is arguing that the reason for that is because they're concerned that there's a coalition of Remain uh, MPs building uh, within Parliament that are going to try and get us back into uh, uh, the EU again. So, uh, well, we'll come on to that in a little bit. But I wanted to focus on this Operation Boot Boris and the being described as a a group of major Tory donors and backbench MPs. And I want to put this article from the Grey Zone up. This came out uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's called Operation Surprise, Leaked Emails Expose Secret Intelligence Could Install Boris Johnson. Now, this seems to be uh, one of the uh, email dumps that led to the exposure of the Integrity Initiative, also the exposure of Foreign Office activities in the Middle East and so on. These uh, email dumps seem to have been coming thick and fast over the last couple of years. Um, but the article here starts, uh, leaked emails reviewed by the Grey Zone reveal possibly a criminal, a criminal plot uh, by pro-leave uh, elites. And they go on to talk about intelligence cabal infiltrated UK civil service uh, thanks to centrally uh, placed mole. Uh, Ex-MI6 chief Richard Dearlove pitched espionage operations targeting civil service and campaign groups, uh, fake Democratic Party fronts run by CIA veterans uh, were proposed to infiltrate pro-Remain groups. Cabal sought to spy on and disrupt Prime Minister's top Brexit negotiator, that's uh, uh, Theresa May, by the way, uh, and shadowy billionaires funded effort in total secret and so on. So let's just have a look and see what they have to say here. They said that uh, uh, the wide-ranging conspiracy was managed by a shadowy cabal of hardcore leavers to sabotage former Prime Minister Theresa May's Brexit deal, remove her from office, replace her with Boris Johnson, and secure a hard withdrawal from the EU. Uh, they say the cabal appears to be led by Gwydion Prince, a member of the Chief of Defence Staff Strategy Advisory Panel, former NATO and Ministry Defence Advisor, Ministry of Defence Advisor, and board member of pro-Brexit group Veterans for Britain. He is joined by former MI6 Chief Richard Dearlove, who is frequently dubbed C in the leaked emails, a reference to the operational initial granted to all heads of British Foreign Intelligence Service. At one point, Dearlove and Prince 
uh, sought to recruit their apparent friend, Henry Kissinger, and his consulting firm as transatlantic lobbyist uh, for their version of Brexit. Uh, it goes on to say, uh, Dear Love's MI6 1999 through 2004 tenure was typified by controversy, thanks largely to deceptions he advanced to justify the war in Iraq. Uh, the longtime spook played a prominent role in selling that illegal war to the media and politicians. Dear Love was ultimately singled out for censure in an official inquiry into the conflict, which found that he had passed on bogus intelligence, testifying to Baghdad's non-existent weapons of mass destruction directly to then Prime Minister Tony Blair. So, I mean, this is all correct uh, so far. Um, and it goes on to say, on uh, September the 21st, 2018, the day after a deeply embarrassing EU summit in Austria, in which member state leaders lined up to condemn Theresa May Checker's plan, Prince emailed Blackwell and the Clodes, these, the Clodes are, well, these are some of the uh, Tory backers that we're talking about here, uh, to, confirm, to inform them he and Dear Love supported a strategy to put intolerable pressure on May, which would serve to keep her in office but not in power. And the subject line of Prince's email read, our active measure strategy, highly sensitive. Uh, it goes on to say, in un it is uncertain uh, that this what this entailed, whether it was successful. In December 2018, however, Prince met in secret with Evelyn Farr, a civil service employee who had previously been identified in UK media as a pro-Brexit activist uh, who, moonlight as, who might, moonlighted as a historian. Uh, writing under the pseudonym Carol, Caroline Bell, Farr publicised privileged information on Brexit negotiations for outlets including Conservative Woman, as well as pro-leave outfits like Briefings for Breakfast, Brexit and Brexit Central. She also passed highly sensitive behind-the-scenes details to the cabal. Uh, these disclosures may well have amounted to a breach of the Official Secrets Act, for which penalties are severe. Uh, the cabal sought to influence Johnson's thinking in other ways as well, it goes on to say. Uh, during the leadership campaign, for example, Dear Love described himself as preoccupied with feeding briefings on national security to Boris, praising his student as a quick and able and an excellent classical scholar, he, uh, he said he felt reasonably confident he would succeed in convincing Johnson's team to block Huawei's participation in Britain's 5G network. The former MI6 chief has long promulgated conspiracy theories that the Chinese tech giant functions as a global spying network for the Communist Party of China. Uh, and the article goes on to say that more recent emails show Prince's enthusiasm for the Prime Minister has considerably waned. In January of this year, uh, he wrote to Dear Love predicting Johnson's imminent and welcome departure and bemoaned the Premier's lack of stamina to truly get Britain do uh, Brexit done. So uh, the question then is, what are we witnessing here? Are we witnessing uh, an unhappy Tory party worried about uh, a group of Remainers coming back and uh, pushing for uh, Britain entering back into the EU in some way? Or is this a continuation of what seems to be uh, a, a conspiracy around Richard Dearlove, Gwydion Prince and others. Uh, and Brian, I'm interested in your thoughts. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that, was it that this woman was giving was, was private number 10 briefings to Dearlove and his crowd, uh, according to these leaked emails. Um, and that has got to be a prosecutable uh, offence. And I'm wondering why they haven't been prosecuted yet. Good question, Mike. Uh, what's my reaction to it? I think what we are seeing here, we're getting a glimpse because we got we can't be exactly sure of what's uh, black and what's white. We're getting a glimpse of the real power base behind 
Westminster, it's becoming increasingly clear that that MPs themselves do not hold power. They are simply the actors on the stage. And then behind the stage, we've got the people pulling the strings and we're getting a glimpse as to who these, these people are. We could ask a similar question about the 1922 committee. What gives the 1922 committee the right to actually depose an elected, I'll put that in inverted commas, an elected prime minister? If we need to get these people out into the open and, and look at who they are and what their roles are. Well, in the case of the 1922 committee, I think it's the, the Tory party rules, but but that's... Well, yeah, but I'm just making the point that the, the, the voter is now an irrelevance on the sideline. We didn't vote for any of these people that you're talking about here to give them a, a, a political power. Um, but clearly they are exerting power behind the scenes and we need the... We need the lid taken off this. Well, I'm going to ask David for a comment in a second, but just before we do, I just want to remind everybody the position that Richard Dearlove has found himself in over the last lot of years. Uh, because, of course, if we put Skripal or remind ourselves about the Skripal affair, uh, Richard Dearlove effectively still uh, controls uh, Christopher Steele, effectively. Uh, and, of course, Christopher Steele was uh, linked very closely with Pablo Miller, uh, who was uh, Skripal's MI6 handler. And so the we find the same types of people and the same names uh, in amongst that. Uh, but as well as that, uh, we also find them in amongst the uh, Russiagate scandal. So anyway, uh, David, what are your thoughts on this up to this point? Well, it's very fascinating because th these are all names known to us. Because when uh, with, with David Ellis and others, we were concentrating on European military union in the run up to Brexit. Um, these are the people we kept coming up, up, up against uh, in the uh, in the in the pro leave side, and we were pushing information at them regarding a uh, European military union, and there was no response. There was no campaigning. There was no headlines. There was no press releases. There was no nothing. It was quite clearly decided. The European military union would not form a major part of the Brexit campaign, which we found at the time inexplicable. I think we still find it in part inexplicable. Uh, but that was a decision made in some shadowy room somewhere. Uh, and that, that, that story never hit the mainstream headlines uh, the way it ought to have done, given the, the importance of, of the topic. And the, and the nature of the times uh, when Brexit in Europe was all anyone was talking about. Uh, indeed. So if we just put the Grey Zone article back on screen here a second, this is uh, one of the paragraphs I wanted to highlight. Uh, the cabal, for its part, was ferociously opposed to any arrangement that would keep Britain tethered to Brussels' defence structures and obligations, contending that it would undermine uh, the US and UK-led Five Eyes global spying network. Uh, and they were also very much promoting the notion of... Uh, transatlantic defence. Um, and I'll just also, before we come on to the transatlantic defence aspect of it, I'll also mention this, the final part of this paragraph. So convinced of this was Prince that he dismissed, um, sorry, he dismissed unsubstantiated rumours of Russian support for Brexit. Uh, and if you remember, of course, um, the, all the rumours from the uh, pro-Remain side uh, were that Russia had been involved and had directly interfered in the whole Brexit campaign. Uh, and in the vote itself. Uh, and I would just remind everybody uh, that, of course, uh, Richard Dearlove, as I've said a second or two ago, was absolutely behind 
uh, he was advising Christopher Steele as Christopher Steele was pulling together his dossier uh, to promote the Russiagate scandal in the United States. So I'm not quite sure how they can say on one, on one side, uh, Russia is not involved in Brexit, nothing to see there, don't worry about that. But yes, Russia is absolutely involved in getting Trump elected. Um, so there's something fishy about that. But as for the, the whole issue of European defense that David was talking about and uh, this transatlantic uh, defense orientation that they uh, wanted a lot more strongly, we should remember, uh, well, and bring uh, King Mark Sedwell on screen here for a second, because, because of course, once he, uh, he was effectively controlling the show all through this whole uh, period of time that this was going on, uh, but Mark Sedwell eventually ended up being moved out of the cabinet office and into uh, the Atlantic Future Forum, which is all about uh, transatlantic defense cooperation and so on. So we see again another dear love linked person uh, seeming to being uh, push, pushed into a role or carrying out a role that suited dear love for a while, but pushed into a role that continues to suit dear love, dear love at this point in time. It's, it's interesting to see how this, this sort of thing we get a glimpse of how this sort of thing works because, of course, we can't know 100% exactly what's going on other than what we see through leaked emails. Yeah, but we're getting enough to see that clearly the picture that we vote for MPs now, MPs um, act for us in Parliament and they discuss policies and they protect us uh, through defence of the nation. This is clearly too simplistic and we've got to get into this so-called deep state, isn't it? That's the correct expression. Uh, in order to find out who these people are who seem to be pulling the strings, plus in many circumstances, they are outside of the law. We've got more laws coming in to give these people even more power. Yes, and uh, so well, let's have a brief look at one of the other organs of the uh, deep state because uh, the BBC has been forced to apologise uh, for this particular image that was taking place uh, during the celebrations over the previous, uh, just prior to the weekend, uh, because they pushed out uh, a little bit of video with uh, graphics for each of the nations of the United Kingdom. Uh, but when it came to Northern Ireland, instead of using the Northern Irish flag, they used the Republic of Ireland flag. Um, and of course, what was what's going on here? Is this Was this a mistake, an accident? Was the person who was pulling the graphics together for this just ignorant of the realities of the situation? I'm, afraid I cannot believe that for a second. This is the BBC we're talking about, I, I accept, but I can't believe that they um, did this by accident. There's a message here. Um, and I just want to remind everybody of this article uh, published by Tobias Elwood that we talked about on Friday. And remember what he was saying, uh, that leaving this aspect of the EU was not on the ballot paper. He was talking about the si single market here, uh, nor called for by either the Prime Minister or Nigel Farage during the 2016 referendum. Uh, there was, however, much discussion about returning to a common market, which is exactly what I propose. So Tobias Elwood is proposing uh, that we re-enter common, a common market at this point, just at the point when Northern Ireland is looking like it's on pretty tricky ground with respect to where it is going to sit within the United Kingdom or if it's going to sit within the United Kingdom. And uh, we suddenly have uh, the uh, BBC accidentally uh, uh, deciding to use the Republic of Ireland flag to represent Northern Ireland, uh, it, it all looks a bit strange. I, I can't believe that the BBC would make a mistake like that, Mike. I just can't believe it. They've got too many people and they're too good at the propaganda. Um, perhaps we can move on to uh, what the BBC has been up to now. 
prior to the weekend, UK column was highlighting that the BBC seemed to be getting a bit tired of Ukraine. And we pointed out that on their front page here, the actual section on Ukraine was greyed out. And uh, we just reminded people, usually that happens on a, uh, a computer program when, when the computer is not going to let you do something. So the BBC greyed out Ukraine. And we also pointed out that the upcoming celebrations uh, meant that it was a good weekend to bury bad news. Well, what started to dribble out over the weekend, hidden by the Queen uh, prodding her uh, globe, fascinating image actually, that one, maybe that requires other discussion. Uh, but if we look over here on the right-hand side, it says something very unfortunate. Russia has seized a fifth of Ukraine, and that's not a, some idle statement because Zelensky himself has said it, and therefore it must be true. Well, actually it is true. And uh, what we started to see was uh, slowly but surely the truth about what's been happening in Ukraine is starting to uh, uh, come into the mainstream media. So the BBC here had to follow it up. Ukraine war, Zelensky says, Russia controls a fifth of the Ukrainian territory. And if we looked at some of the supporting articles, it uh, got interesting because we very quickly had mention of the long range US rockets. Uh, the Russians saying that's going to add fuel to the fire. Well, any reasonable person would say that. But also look at the headline center there. It, it's a picture of uh, Boris and Joe Biden. And the headline says, how long can Western unity over Ukraine hold? And although the BBC isn't reporting it, of course, we've got fragmentation across Europe over sanctions, over fuel, over weapons to Ukraine. And is the thing holding together just about? But this is what's causing the trouble. If we get on to the reports of the battle in Ukraine, uh, this is the key place, Severodonets. And uh, we're into the Luhansk region here. And the key battle around these two conurbations, Severodonets and Lizzie Chance. And the key bit is that the Russians have taken most of Severodonets. The Ukrainians have attempted a counterattack which has been uh, heavily beaten off. But at the moment, the Ukrainians are in the higher ground of Lizichansk, and it's clear that the Russians intend to take this area because they can move forward to Bakhmud, and they are then in control of the major communications. So this is a key point. This is a turning point in, in the uh, war in Ukraine. And to date, the uh, Western media, the US media, have simply been ignoring it. So we're going to put on screen here that uh, basically having lied and misled the UK and Ukrainian public over the progress of the war in Ukraine, the truth of the Russian advances now hits home. But this has leaked out principally over the weekend when, of course, people have been highly distracted. And um, we're, we're going to repeat constantly, of course, that every day that the BBC prolongs the war, the deaths uh, continue to rise. And there is no question the minimum number of Ukrainian deaths per day is 100, with probably five, maybe 600 people wounded. So let's take it on, uh, because here's the BBC having to get into the meat of the subject. How long can the Western consensus hold on? And if we have a look at some comment here by Mr. Ian Bond at the Centre for European Reform, he says something very interesting. He says there's a kind of calibration going on as though we're saying we want the Ukrainians to win, 
but not to win too much. So what are we seeing here, Mike? We're starting to see deep politics at work in the Ukrainian war. And as we're going to see in a minute, they're being given weapons. But is that going to make a difference? Probably not. So uh, comment goes on here. And um, uh, what are we saying here? If the Russians completely break through Ukrainian lines in the east and start heading for the Dnieper River, the question of how much territory Ukraine would be willing to sacrifice to achieve a ceasefire is going to move up the agenda. And of course, even uh, if we just hi highlight that and this one here, uh, um, the first, sorry, the first one, of course, even Biden has repeated and Kissinger. But what have we got following up? It's saying by the same token, if the Ukrainian forces start driving the Russians back, there will be voices in the West saying, don't try and recapture parts of the Donbass that the Russians have controlled since 2014. So very clear that there's some very deep politics working here at the moment. And uh, well, indeed, but but I mean, as Vanessa said on Wednesday, that even that idea of that the Russians have controlled since 2014 is utterly disingenuous because, of course, the Russians aren't in control. They have the, the, these are their upcoming republics. They or at least are calling themselves republics. They've set up their own governmental institutions. Yeah. So this isn't that the, that the Russians are in there controlling the governments of these countries. They are controlling their own and asking for autonomy. And as they've asked consistently since 2014 for Russian support to achieve that. Totally, totally accept, accept that. My, the, the key point here, though, I think being made is that uh, even Ukraine is now beginning to understand that the advice from the West is don't even think you're getting territory right. back, whether it's under the control of the, the Russians or the Ukrainian. David, don't know whether you just want to make a quick comment before I just move on through the rest of this report. Well, uh, yes, a quick comment. This is uh, an absolutely critical part of the campaign, right? Because what's happening here is Ukraine never really was an independent country. What could be happening could be the birth of a nation that through the, the war and the attacks and the, and the strife, that uh, the, the viewpoint in, in the Ukrainian population will become so independently minded that they will want to form an independent nation separate from Russia. And that's a possibility, but then they have to, they have to hold territory. Right? And they have to defend and maintain a certain amount of territory and they have to negotiate. So firstly, there's no leadership in Ukraine actually taking them in that direction, which is reckless in the extreme. And secondly, they're, they're facing the potential crisis in the Donbass. The Russians have not had it easy. They had, I think the last count I had was, was seven attempts to close a pincer from the north with river crossings, all of which failed. Uh, but they've had this uh, breakthrough at, uh, at Popasna the, in, the, in the south part, um, where there's now a major Russian advance, and that's threatening to close off uh, Ukrainian, uh, very large uh, amounts of Ukrainian forces. That has to either be stopped or those forces have to be evacuated, or essentially the losses might be unsustainable for the Ukrainian military. So it's very critical uh, what happens in the next few uh, weeks and months and um, they, there must, at the end of the day, be a negotiated settlement. That must cede territory. A anything else is absolutely unthinkable. 
Uh, there's no sign of significant Ukrainian advance. There's no sign of them being able to expel the Russians by force from everywhere, the eastern Donbass, the Crimea, and, and all the rest of it, that they are currently claiming they will uh, achieve victory in. This is not sensible, and they're going to have to. They're going to have to negotiate, and there's going to have to be uh, a peaceful and diplomatic settlement to the fighting at some point. Okay, thank you, David. Well, you say a settlement has to happen. That's got to be the sensible, uh, rational argument. But of course, what does the West want? What does UK want? Get in those weapon systems to prolong the war. And of course, this is the weapon system of choice. The uh, howitzers are now old hat. We don't want to talk about Western howitzers. We're now going to talk about uh, long range missile systems. So again, this is the BBC report. Um, we're going to be sending long range missile systems to Ukraine. But interestingly, this, this particular headline links to two articles that are several days old. Uh, but nevertheless, what the BBC is trying to tell us is that uh, basically this is going to be the weapon system that changes the war. But the actual number of them being passed over to the Ukrainians is a handful. And uh, Putin has already said that it's irrelevant to the combat, which is which is the correct response. I'll just um, add on this page, I couldn't help notice that while the reader was was looking at uh, the reality of the war in Ukraine, the BBC also inviting us to look at the Queen and Paddington Bear. But I think we're going to be talking about that at a later date. So here's the weapons system. And um, what we're being told is these are better than anything the Russians have got. No, the point is that these are equivalent to weapon systems that Ukraine has had and lost in high numbers. Uh, during the war to date. Yeah, so the reason the BBC has uh, published that and then linked back to previous art articles is because the UK uh, government uh, issued it as a press release today or maybe yesterday. Um, but in fact, Ben Wallace had already commented on this last week. And, uh, and of course, we'd mentioned it on Friday as well. But anyway, M270 weapon systems is it can strike targets up to 80 kilometers away with pinpoint accuracy. And it will offer a significant boost to the capability for the Ukrainian forces, said the government's press release. Uh, and alongside the weapon system, the UK will also supply uh, M31A1 munitions at scale. Uh, there's no definition of what at scale means in this case. So let's get Ben on screen. The UK stands with Ukraine in this fight. Uh, is the UK standing with Ukraine? I don't see I think we are particularly. But well, anyway. it's an interesting question because we know British special forces are on the ground. We're pumping in the weapons. So to a certain extent we are. But as that commentator said, it's as if we don't want the Ukrainians to win too much. Yes, don't want them to win too much. Uh, so we stand with them uh, and uh, we're taking a leading role in supplying its heroic troops with the vital weapons uh, they need to defend their country from unprovoked invasion. Uh, as Russia's tactics change, so must our support to Ukraine. Uh, these highly capable multiple launch rocket systems will enable our Ukrainian friends to better protect themselves. I thought that was interesting as Russia's tactics, cha tactics change. Well, this is all part of the fact that for months, well, for weeks, the Russians were failing and losing and disastrous until suddenly everyone discovers, no, they're actually winning. That's ah, the right. That's the, the tactical change, right. Yes. yes, right. OK. They decided um, not to lose anymore. Right. Indeed. Yeah. So we just bring this one back. So here's the BBC commentary on it. And uh, I'm going to come on to the longer range bit in just a second. But a game changer, question mark analysis by Paul Adams. 
And he's, here, here's the bit that you've really given Mike. GPS-guided rockets are much more accurate than the equivalent Russian systems. And essentially, Ukraine is going to be able to hit all these targets well beyond its current reach. Command and control centers, logistic hubs, and the Russian batteries that Ukrainian troops pinned down in Donbass, they are fighting over vast areas. We're talking about a handful of these things, mm. a handful. So this is complete nonsense and misleading hype for the BBC. But of course, what is it really doing? Dragging the war out. And uh, the comment on the longer range is that nobody wants to mention except a few media sources that the Ukrainians are not being given the ultra long range systems, which would allow them to attack into deep into Russia. And the inference is that not even the US or the West is silly enough to put those sorts of weapons in the Ukrainian hands. Mm. So the systems the Ukrainians have been given are not that brilliant, but also they're very limited in range. Now, what's happening on the ground? Well, of course, is death and injury. And I just wanted to focus in for a couple of minutes on this article from The Guardian. Russian says Tory MP's son involved in killing Chechen commander in Ukraine. Uh, encourage people to go and have a look at this article. And here's Ben Grant, the star of the article, a former Royal Marine, um, son of a uh, Conservative MP. Um, this uh, a picture taken on the way out to Ukraine. And of course, what do we see? Gentleman right on the picture. Uh, he's looking very happy. Mm. It's all a bit of a laugh. He's off with the boys. So this is some of the comment that he made. We're going to wait and see what the situation is as we get further in. It's all going to depend on how well the Ukrainians are doing in different parts and also where they need us. Uh, if they need us to be an independent unit because of the specialist skills within each group and each team that comes out, maybe an independent unit is what gets formed. So all very confident, all full of the joys of spring until, oh dear, he's involved in combat. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. I was, quote, terrified, unquote, but driven to complete my most important goal, which at the time was getting him, that's a wound, badly wounded man, and my team out of danger. So suddenly, um, the smirk has gone. This man is not so cocky. Of course, he can come out of Ukraine and talk about what happened to him, whereas other people have got to stay on the front line. Um, but this is classic. This is the demonstration that Western military people, even if they've been in Afghanistan and Iraq, and this is no disrespect to them, but they are being faced with a completely different war in Ukraine. Um, the veterans today picked up on this story as well. Um, worst fighting I've ever experienced. And they give a lot more detail, which readers can have a look at themselves. But the key bit about this is that uh, Ben is talking about shooting to kill other people uh, before essentially there was a, an ambush. And that meant that he ended up having to bring out a man who had his legs severely uh, injured. Now, what fascinates me are two women involved in this, because on the right, we've got Liz Truss, who uh, has said several times that young men and women should go out from UK in order to go on that battlefield and experience what Ben has experienced. And on the left is Ben's mother, the Conservative MP, Helen Grant. Now, not suggesting she even knew her son was going there, but I think the key question is, um, 
Helen Grant should surely be asking some questions of Liz Truss, Mike, don't you think? Should be. Uh, and in fact, uh, she didn't know initially because he didn't tell her that he was going. Uh, that's what the papers report. Yeah. That's it. Even his own family did not know that he was going out there. And of course, parents cannot be fully responsible for a grown up child. But I think there's some questions to be asked. Yes. Uh, just uh, a bit of news from uh, Russia. And uh, this is uh, Maria Zakharova here reported in TASS uh, saying that uh, uh, a number of countries, including Bulgaria, North Macedonia, Montenegro, uh, have uh, closed. I mean, basically all the NATO countries, plus a couple of others that are around Serbia, have closed their airspace uh, to Russian aircraft, particularly uh, Sergei Lavrov's aircraft. So any diplomatic mission he was intending to be in Serbia uh, today, I believe, uh, is not possible uh, to take part, take place. Um, but uh, David, uh, the Russians have nothing to worry about with NATO expansion. <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is the idea. You see, um, the, the the basic principle is NATO's completely benign, right? Western liberalism is is the definition of goodness, Mike. And who wouldn't want to sign up for that? And anyone who anyone who doesn't agree, well, they're evil by definition, and therefore they can have no they can have no complaints. Whatever we do, because we're on the side of goodness and rightness, and and they're on the side of evil. And uh, don't think anything more about it than that, Mike, because otherwise you'll you'll be uh, peddling nasty disinformation. Yes, indeed. Uh, and speaking of NATO expansionism, uh, let's have a look at exercise ball tops, which is uh, began yesterday, Brian. Uh, Royal Navy involved in it, of course. Uh, so uh, Exercise Ball Tops 22 kicked off yesterday. It's hosted by Sweden. Um, and uh, so we've got uh, 40 NATO ships, uh, including USS uh, Kearsarge, uh, and that's which is the largest of the ships that's there. Uh, no one in Stockholm can miss that there is a big American ship here in our city. And that was uh, Michael Biden, who's the Supreme Commander of the Swedish Armed Forces. Um, there are more capabilities on this ship, uh, this is uh, with respect to uh, the USS Kearsage, than I could gather in a garrison, he said. Um, and so uh, this is obviously partly related to Sweden's efforts to join NATO, uh, but there's clearly a message being sent there as well to Sweden that if they do join NATO, they're going to be expected to actually front up with uh, some uh, uh, material of their own. Uh, indeed, 40 ships, big exercise and coming at this particular time with Ukraine, in my view, clearly designed to put more pressure on the Russians. Yes. David, I think you wanted a quick comment. Well, just if you look at the Crimea campaign, which is part of a larger war to control Russian expansion in the 19th century, uh, it obviously had a very large uh, naval component in the Baltic. Um, it just seems a little interesting that we're doing exactly the same playbook again. Yes. OK, well, can we trust anything that we hear from uh, Western or perhaps a bulk of US media at the moment? Uh, certainly, we've got to be careful. Now, last week we covered this story of a Ukrainian student up in Edinburgh who'd got very unhappy because she believed that one of the lecturers was uh, putting out misinformation or was it disinformation? Uh, let's have a look. The uh, victim was Tim Haywood, and apparently he'd been tweeting out the wrong sorts of things, like saying the destruction of Mariupol Theatre was broadcast worldwide as an atrocity warranting the West's intervention. 
but what do we know of the reality? Well, of course, if you ask those sorts of questions, you're going to be in big trouble. Um, so the young lady went off. She told BBC Radio 4, the moment we start to equate the two sides in the story is the moment we lose our humanity. The oppressor, in this case, Russia, should not be given the same kind of platform as those who are being uh, oppressed. Now, was this lady an innocent or a political manipulator? We don't know. She could be either or maybe even a bit of both. Um, but uh, I wanted to highlight um, that uh, interaction on propaganda with this. So a little while ago, the BBC was busy reporting uh, this particular lady um, who was making all sorts of claims about children and later rape. Um, so her name is Denisova. And um, as a representative of the Ukrainian government, um, she was putting out a variety of messages which were deeply disturbing. This one, when our children are taken out, they destroy the national identity, deprive our country of the future. They teach our children there in Russia the history that Putin has told everyone. The BBC said uh, Denisova did not provide any evidence to support her claims and the BBC has not been able to verify them. Nevertheless, the BBC gives her lots of print space and lots of media space. Here's another one, Ukraine conflict, Russian soldiers raped me and killed my husband. If we blow this one up so we can read it, Ukraine's Ombudsman for Human Rights, Denisova, says they're documenting several such cases. 25 girls and women aged 14 to 24 were systematically raped during the, uh, the occupation in the basement of one house in Booker. Nine of them are pregnant, she said. So uh, this is pretty uh, harrowing stuff. And uh, there was more detail given in the uh, uh, BBC article, including uh, this business. Um, were there, was there more evidence uh, to which the reply was, it's impossible at the moment because not everyone is willing to tell us what happened to them. The majority of them currently call for psychological support. So we cannot record those as crimes unless they give us their testimony. So the, I'm going to say the propaganda went out there. It spread far and wide. This is DW America. Uh, Russian soldiers kept and raped 25 Ukrainian women. But suddenly we have this from a few days ago. Zero Hedge, Ukraine fires own human rights chief for, perpetu for perpetuating Russian troop systematic rape stories. Um, and here's uh, part of the article saying that a number of other outlets, Interfax, Politico, The Wall Street Journal and others, reporting that she's been fired precisely for floating, perpetuating fantastic, fantastical claims of mass rape, but without providing evidence. A lot more detail if you go to the article and have a look in it. And uh, what's clear is that her dismissal was a conscious decision by the Ukrainian government, forced really uh, by some non-governmental organizations pointing out that she was making insensitive and unverifiable statements about alleged Russian sex crimes. So this is the reality. Uh, the strange thing is that if you do a search, as I, I did earlier today on BBC website, you get absolutely nothing on this lady. The material of her claims is still up there, but nothing about her dismissal. And I think as, as an example of the reason that we cannot trust the uh, BBC, we couldn't get better. Yeah, indeed. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, if you uh, did, you have a comment, David. 
Well, just to close off the piece, Mike, uh, Tim Hayward, the, the professor at the, the, the centre of this uh, Fiore in uh, Edinburgh, who has been attacked in the Times and elsewhere uh, on more than one occasion uh, for his stance on uh, exploring the realities of the U Ukraine war, uh, was also tweeting out this week uh, about the Bilderberg conference. So um, he seems to be unbowed. Well, and, and indeed he is. And of course, he was a, a long-standing member of the Media on Trial group uh, that uh, that ran a number of events, uh, which were also censored uh, one or two occasions uh, and resulted in other attacks on him, Piers Robinson and Vanessa Bailey and others. So, so uh, you know, he has been doing this for a long time now and uh, has a good track record if anybody wants to follow him on Twitter and elsewhere. Now, if you'd like to support the UK column, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, your help would be very much appreciated and is very much needed. Uh, or you can pick something up at the UK column shop. I'd just like to thank everybody that has been doing that over the last uh, period. Uh, and But please do also share material on the various platforms as well. Now, David, uh, where does that take us? The Bank of England is now the Treasury's poodle. Yes, yeah, so this was an, an article in uh, the Telegraph a short while ago. Fascinating article, and I've got a, a little bit of detail on this for you. Uh, it's written by Neil Record, more on him in a moment. Uh, and he's looking at the Bank of England's performance, and he says it's possible that the answer, is the answer to why they're not raising interest rates more, uh, it's possible that the answer lies not only in the extraordinary loss of de facto independence exhibited by the Bank of England in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis, but also in the structures of the bank's own balance sheet. And this is what we're about to uh, explore. Um, now, um, this is a wee bit of information on Neil Record, British businessman. He used to work in the Bank of England. He was an economist in the early in his career in the bank. Um, he's... Um, uh, one of the earliest uh, specialists in uh, in currency management. And he's also written books on Sir Humphrey's legacy, facing up to the true cost of public sector pensions, and public sector pensions, the UK's second national debt. So he's not afraid to go into areas that will annoy people, and he has got a track record of, um, of doing so. Now, uh, back to the article. So he's writing here, stripped down to the bare bones, QE, quantitative easing, means the Bank of England has lent the UK government around $850 billion in fixed interest, long-term loans or gilts. To finance these loans, the Bank of England has borrowed the money from commercial banks, paying the bank rate as interest. Now, I wasn't quite clear on that myself. I, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, he continues, the rate of interest payable on this overdraft is variable. The interest rate received from the loans to the government has averaged little more than 1% a year, they're currently paying 1% interest. Uh, it, but it's capable of being overwhelmed by changes in the market value of gilts, which are traded on the open markets and can um, and can fluctuate substantially. Now, we get to the core of it, the heart of it. What has actually happened is that a wholly owned subsidiary of the Bank of England, the Bank of England Asset Purchase Facility Fund Limited, has bought the gilts from the government, financed by borrowing short-term from the Bank of England. In turn, the Bank of England has financed the loan to the APF by borrowing from the commercial banks. In this upside-down world of central banking, the Bank of England's borrowing from commercial banks is called reserve balances, on which it pays the bank interest rate. So, I thought we'd have a little look 
at the Bank of England Asset Purchase Facility Fund Limited. And you see here the, uh, the, the this, it's all the directors are all senior people in the Bank of England. Andy Haldane was uh, in post at the time of the last published annual report, which is up to February 2021. Um, when we get into where the risk lies, the company's operations are fully indemnified by HM Treasury. The company is not exposed to financial risk, but manages the relevant risks on the underlying portfolio on the Treasury's behalf. So this is already starting to look not very independent, Mike. Um, if we go to the, the, the financial results, the balance sheet totaled $788 billion at, at the end of uh, February 21. Um, and the principal liability was a loan from the Bank of England of $773 billion. Um, the fair value of the company's holdings of securities was $785 billion, $766 billion in gilts, and $19 billion in um, corporate bonds. Um, so... This goes on, it says asset purchases affect the economy. So they're talking about risks and uncertainties here. They, they say, first of all, they repeat the fact that the company is indemnified by the Treasury. It will, it will return any surplus to the tre Treasury, but any losses will be payable by the Treasury, by you and me through our taxes. Asset purchases affect the economy and ultimately inflation, interesting that they admit this quite clearly in these documents, through a variety of channels via households, corporates, and financial markets and institutions. Um, so they then outline, they give a little graph. This, this, this graph tells you almost nothing. It's stylized. Stylized means so abstract as to be essentially meaningless. But essentially, asset purchases go through influencing uh, guilt yields, yields on other assets, exchange rates, cost of borrowing, wealth, spending and income, and ultimately affect inflation and growth. Now, I would argue about the growth, but there's no, there's no disputing, this is from their own documents, that asset purchases, the QE programme, affects and causes inflation. It's in their own documentation. Uh, quickly looking at their uh, income for the year, this is quite interesting, total income, has got brackets around it, minus 39.4 billion. Well done. And uh, that will be covered by a net indemnity from the Treasury of 40.1 billion. So we're already paying for the privilege of this uh, facility. And uh, we've got a little graph here from the Telegraph again. So it's showing how um, it's, it, the, the bank has been paying QE dividends to the Treasury. That's going to go negative, so uh, the Treasury will actually be paying the bank for this facility. And we've got here also the uh, financial statement, the, the, the balance sheet. So they've got this $788 billion in total assets, just to confirm the size of it. A um, couple of other... Oops. Thank you, pardon. That's the wrong way. Have I lost... Yeah, okay. The ability so I'll, to move my I'll, slide. Uh, I'll move, I'll move there it we on. Go. Right, there you go. Right, There's next one. one. There we go. Um, the uh, couple of other quick interesting things. Five billion is invested in Europe. Um, the maturity analysis here shows that there's something like um, 230, getting on for 230 billion of these, of these uh, gilts have uh, become mature in the next five years. So the, they're going to be affected significantly by inflation. And could you just hit the next one there, Mike? 
Uh, so back to the Telegraph article. So the, 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 he continues, to add to the complexity, the Bank of England has agreed to keep the interest rates on its holdings, and no, sorry, not to keep the interest on its holdings of government debts, but to remit the receipts back to the Treasury. Conversely, the Bank of England has effectively charged APF zero for the 870-odd billion pound loan. Uh, finally, the Treasury has agreed to indemnify the Bank of England against any losses on the APF's guilt portfolio in return for the Bank of England paying the Treasury any profits. If I were a lawyer trying to tease out the real relationships that lie behind these erudite and complex arrangements, what would I say? I would say that from a financial perspective, the APF via the Bank of England is in effect a poodle of the Treasury with no independent financial existence. Um, interestingly, sorry, next slide, thanks, yeah. Mike. Interestingly, the um, to comply with UK company law, every subsidiary company must report its ultimate parent, and the APF reports the Treasury, not the Bank of England, as the ultimate parent. Hence, the complicated intermediation of the Bank of England is, in fact, a sham. What has happened is that the government, via the Treasury, has chosen to borrow money at short-term rates in the banking system rather than sell long-term debt to non-banking private sector pension funds, life insurance companies, etc. And um, to put some meat on the bones, a 3% rise in long-term interest rates, uh, which is well within historical norms, would mean a fall of at least 20% in the value of the guilt holdings. This would open up a £170 billion hole in the balance sheet, which the Treasury is contractually obliged to cover. Uh, the Office for uh, Budget Responsibilities, latest forecast for government deficit is £99 billion. That could be blown up by this additional government expenditure, nearly treading it to £270 billion. So what's, what this says here is that the, the whole QE system, when this started, not only did it generate inflation, not only has it been at the very heart of the inflation we're now seeing, uh, but it also represented the surrender of any independence uh, on the part of the Bank of England. Uh, they're now completely constrained by the relationship with the Treasury and by their own balance sheet. And the one tool that they have, which they tell us they're going to use wisely to save the economy from disaster, which is interest rate policy, they can't actually use without blowing up their own balance sheet and wrecking the government finances in the process, because the entire um, 780 billion QE program is on uh, essentially a short-term adjustable rate mortgage. Yes, and that uh, undoubtedly applies to the Fed as well, perhaps. We'll need to look into that one. I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, well, uh, if I was to ask, is could you think of one global leader that might be actually talking about this? I wonder who would that who that would be. Uh, let's bring him on screen uh, because here he is, Vladimir Putin, uh, and he uh, was speaking to the Russian media on Friday, uh, and he said this: the money supply in the United States grew by 5.9 trillion in less than two years from February 2020 to the end of 2021. Uh, unprecedented productivity of the money printing machines. Uh, the total cash supply grew by 38.6 percent. Uh, so it was a mistake made by the U.S. financial and economic authorities. It was nothing to do with Russia's actions in Ukraine. It's totally unrelated. So, David, that's the first point. He's bang on the money there, as you said to me earlier, and uh, that's quite an unfortunate term. But anyway, uh, he's absolutely correct. And uh, the U.K. and the U.S. doing exactly the same kinds of things. 
Yes, and it's demonstrably accurate because you can see when the inflation kicked in and it was long before any action by Russia, military or otherwise. Yes. Uh, this has been generated by, by the QE programme and by the response to COVID, which was more QE. Indeed. Uh, so then he went on to talk about uh, food supplies and he said uh, uh, that and that was the first step and a big one towards the current unfavourable food market situation because in the first place, food prices immediately went up. They grew. Uh, but he went on to say that in the current agricultural year of 2021-2022, we, that's in Russia, will export 37 million tonnes and I believe we will raise these exports to 50 million tonnes in 2022-2023. That's off wheat. Um, and that's at the time that the UK is reducing its tonnage of wheat produced because we would prefer to grow wildflower meadows and plant new trees uh, on excellent agricultural land instead. But this, this is a, a key point. He has uh, turned his uh, agricultural industry around in the last couple of decades. Uh, and they are a massive exporter of uh, of wheat. But of course, just as with oil and gas, uh, we can't buy that uh, because and we can't uh, buy that. And therefore, uh, the prices aren't coming down at all because um, we can't. Uh, and uh, they must. Oh, the, then he went on to talk about uh, the situation, you know, the accusations that uh, the Ukrainian situation is stopping Ukrainian wheat from getting out of the country. Uh, and he's making the point, well, actually, the main reason that uh, this stuff can't get out of Ukraine uh, through the ports is because of the mines that have been laid by the Ukrainians and the ships that they had sunk on purpose in the Black Sea to make it difficult to enter the ports in the south of Ukraine. Uh, and again, that's another accurate point. Uh, and he said, and at this time, at the same time, they begin, they began to belittle the importance of conventional types of energy, including and above all hydrocarbons, uh, because he is absolutely attacking uh, the Green New Deal in this uh, in this report as well. So, uh, you know, again, undoubtedly, somebody will say that we're taking a pro-Putin line by putting this up. But the fact is, none of this is being discussed by the Western media. And the fact is, these are what these are the words that he said, David. Yeah, it's not a pro-Putin a pro line. We've been saying this for years. Uh, and it's and he's actually been quite gentle with them. They're not they're not belittling hydrocarbons. They're demonising hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons are the great evil. We've got people uh, covering um, government buildings in Edinburgh with red paint because there's a a suggestion we're going to open an oil field. Uh, such as the the uh, hysteria about the effects of hydrocarbons that that have been um, stoked up in the West. And it is of course factually incorrect and very harmful. And I think that Putin's comments there are correct and actually quite quite gentle and mild. Uh, well, that could be a function of translation, of course. Um, we don't, we're not entirely sure. But anyway, I take your point. Uh, but let's uh, move on then to uh, The Telegraph and uh, uh, well, Sri Lanka and the question. Well, the whole issue of, uh, I mean, Brian was talking about the issue of rape in Ukraine and at the same time, the UK government has been pushing this idea over the uh, last couple of, uh, well, the last 10 years or so that we've got to get Ukraine out of war zones and so on because it shouldn't be used as a weapon of war. But in fact, in Sri Lanka, uh, it's sex, selling sex is being used in order to just survive the economic turmoil over there. 
Yes, and this is this is the point we've we've covered Sri Lanka a few times because it seems to be, you know, the the most critical case uh, in the world economy at the moment, and it's just it's sally today as to what it actually means for people on the ground. Uh, quote is my only hope. End quote. Women forced to sell sex to survive as Sri Lanka's turmoil escalates. Um, so the here the the the, uh, the journalist describes a diminutive female figure enters the brightly lit courtyards tugging a blue Disney-themed dress below her knees and swatting away the mosquitoes. With a sigh, she expresses her disappointment that it's only a journalist who has entered the makeshift brothel and not a client. Um, and... Uh, can I change that? No, it's all right. it's all, it was no. already changed. What? Okay. Sorry, beg your pardon. Just keep going. Um, right. So Sri Lanka is uh, teetering dangerously on the verge of total collapse. There's a chronic nationwide shortage of food, Medicines fuel, deadly violence um, it threatens to break out. It's not always been that way. As recently as 2019, Sri Lanka was heralded by the World Bank as a lower middle income country, a developing economic success story. Um, and a large part of this was derived from the booming apparel and textile industry uh, that in 2019 exported 4.4 billion pounds worth of goods. Um, factories were largely staffed by women. But women working in the garment sector have now seen the daily wages of about a thousand Sri Lankan rupees or £2.20 become worthless because of inflation, which is expected to reach 40%. So, so the, the point I'm making here is it's, it's the inflation that's causing dislocation in the economy. And the dislocation in a fragile economy like Sri Lanka is the difference between people having a regular, if poorly paid work on which they can survive and develop their economy, their families, and actually make progress, and in this case, being driven into prostitution. Um, that's the effect inflation's having there. Um, the, it, the, the article closes um, with the, the madam in the, in the brothel saying, I've had uh, two girls call me from, from way up in the northwestern Sri Lanka asking to work here. They just don't have any opportunities because of the crisis. The girls are getting into this industry. They're helpless people. I'm keeping them off the streets. So this is the situation in Sri Lanka, and it shows that it's the it's the poorest and most vulnerable that uh, are affected most severely by inflation. And then when they're desperate, people well, desperate people do desperate things. Yes. Um, okay. Well, uh, let's put this on screen then. This was reported last week, and we didn't cover it. Uh, this was the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Brian and David, suggesting that uh, Prince Andrew should be forgiven uh, for the sex abuse scandal. Um, I noted that uh, both he and Prince Andrew were not able to attend the uh, celebrations for the Queen last week because they both tested for COVID. I'm just wondering were they together at some point? Uh, I'm not sure, but but anyway. Uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on this. I mean, it seems to me that uh, if there's to be any forgiveness, uh, there has to be some sign of contrition or some acceptance that there was wrongdoing done. Um, and of course, we haven't had any of that yet. David. Well, this is correct. Uh, for, forgiveness forgiveness re requires, um, firstly, the request for forgiveness. It requires um, someone to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Uh, so there must be honesty, there must be openness, um, and there must be um, at least the, the, the expression of regret. Uh, we haven't seen that, um, I'm afraid. Yes. You any thoughts? Well, I, I just come back to when uh, Welby was in front of the ICSA child abuse inquiry to 
answer questions as to why the Church of England had not protected uh, abuse of survivors or hadn't protected them at the time. And uh, did he give an apology? Yes. Was it uh, credible? No, not in my opinion. So it's just amazing to me how the fact it's royalty, it's Epstein, it was big news. Um, you get Welby standing up to say this man should be forgiven. Um, what is he doing with all the other wrongs in the world? I, I, don't, I don't have any time for him, really. No, indeed. <laughs> OK, let's move on to uh, Scotland, David. And uh, well, lots going on there at the moment. Yes, if you want to find um, truly epic levels of financial mismanagement, Sri Lanka's one option, Scotland's another one. Uh, we've got here politics.co.uk uh, reporting. This was about a week ago. We were trying to cover it, but time didn't allow. Uh, news analysis from the Institute of, uh, for Fiscal Studies shows that the Scottish government is set to report a £3.5 billion black hole in funding. Um, so their director, David Phillips, said a series of expensive uh, spending commitments on top of underlying spending pressures means the Scottish government faces a multi-billion budget shortfall over the next four years under current forecasts. And uh, this, uh, he says that the Scottish Spending Review could see announcements of pretty hefty tax rises or cuts to spending on lower priority services or even the abandonment of some policy commitments to bring the budget into balance. Um, this was also um, shown in this uh, report in the Scottish Sun. Uh, they say cash woes, uh, Scottish government faces multi-billion pound shortfall. Um, and uh, they also report, uh, the report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, the Scottish government will have to choose some combination of axing, taxing and hoping for the UK government to top up its spending plans. Would you like to guess how that would work out? Um, and I've got here... Um, one final uh, article from uh, the UK government back in 2019 to prove this problem is not recent. Uh, Scottish income tax shortfall offset by UK funding. Scottish government's £941 million income tax shortfall was offset by £737 million increase in UK government funding. Uh, the Scottish government raised uh, less than expected uh, tax. Um, in 2017-2018, um, but because of a risk-sharing framework, um, about 80% of it was bailed out by the UK government. Now, right, sorry, sorry, David, just before you move government... on, just before you move on, did I take that then, that yeah. if it was 941 million in 2019, and it, what is it now, two billion or so? Three and a half billion over four years. Right, well, that's quite an acceleration. No, no, it's a, that's, that's, well, if you if you don't take into account the bailing out from the from the UK taxpayer, it's it's about pro rata, right? Okay. So no, the three and a half billion, the three and a half billion is the aggregate over four years, right? The aggregate black hole. Now, part of the reason for this is the Scottish government has uh, decided that higher taxes that will fix things. So they've put up tax pay, the tax rates on every Scot that's successful. Uh, so you pay much more tax in Scotland than you do in England. And this has resulted in the total tax take from the Scottish people falling because um, the Laffer curve. So we've got the Laffer curve illustrated here. And um, what this shows is if you, if you tax at 0%, well, you get zero money. 
If you tax it 100%, you still get zero money because who's, who's going to work? It's just all stolen by the government. And at some point, you've got a maximizing revenue point, And at some other point with less tax, you've got a maximizing of growth point. Uh, so if you go beyond the maximizing uh, revenue point, which the Scottish government clearly has, because they know nothing about economics, uh, you actually increase the tax rate and have declining revenues. So the Scottish government has proven, once again, the Laffer curve is real, uh, and it's no laughing matter, and uh, we are in big trouble. Uh, but uh, they're going to reset their public services. Uh, how are they going to do that? By sacking a lot of people? <laughs> Well, yes. Um, so Kate Forbes, our finance secretary, shows the word reset. Wonder, wonder wherever she got that word from, Mike. Uh, more on that in a moment. So we're going to reset public services. So she said, Scotland must, Scotland, not the Scottish government, with collective responsibility, Scotland must rethink how it delivers its public services in the wake of COVID and Brexit. Did you like that? It's, it's COVID and Brexit that's to blame. It's not us. Uh -huh. It's not our tax rates. No, no, it's COVID and Brexit. Um, and they now needed, uh, uh, she said, the public sector had grown for years, but now needed a reset to become more efficient. So there we go. Um, so the overall Scottish budget is due to increase from 41.8 to 47.5 billion, but that's over four years, and that won't nearly cover what they've planned. Um, and she continued, the Scottish government uh, cannot prioritise everything. We do need to reshape and refocus the public sector post-COVID, all COVID's fault, and the spending review calls upon all, all the public sector to look creati creatively at ways to su sustainably address that challenge. Okay, we're using all the buzzwords. Uh, Ms Forbes said that the government would seek to ensure public sector workers were given, quote, fair, end quote, pay increases, you can decide for yourself what that means, um, and warned it was having to operate within a severely limited budget. She said this could be achieved through, quote, effective vacancy and recruitment management, end quote, techniques. I think that means sacking people, Mike. Uh, I think the last count um, was 17,000, wasn't it? Yeah. And this would allow remaining staff to be given a year-on-year -year pay increases. Yes, they're going to reduce the... the um, the public sector, the, the civil service um, payroll in Scotland quite heavily because, well, they've been they've been buying people's loyalty for quite some time and they've eventually run out of our money and indeed the money that they're getting from England. So they've, they've hit the buffers, I'm afraid. Um, it then gets quite funny. Um, she said there should be a renewed focus on well-being. We still don't think they can define it, but we're going to focus in a renewed manner upon it. With bodies being invited to take part in a four-day working week pilot. My, oh, my. I think Brian might have something to add to that one. Um, as well as continuing to make better use of technology for, for hybrid and home working. Um, so back to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, they're pointing out that um, the budgets for the police, justice, universities, and rural affairs are going to be down 8% in real terms. Spending on enterprise, tourism, and trade promotion, in other words, anything that might actually help, down 16%, health spending up 2.6%, in real terms, that over four years, that will not cover it, and uh, social security spending up 48%, so they're still planning to buy people, um, but I love it when they, when they use the word reset, uh, particularly when it's a Scottish minister using the word reset, because 
under Scots law, and we go here, Scott, uh, sorry, crime.scot is not a Scottish government website, I must point that out. It's, it's nothing to do with the Scottish government. Crime.scot um, is a guide to Scottish criminal law. And reset in Scots law is the dishonest possession of goods obtained by another by way of theft, robbery, fraud, or embezzlement in the knowledge that they were obtained that way. Now, I point out to you, Mike, taxation is theft. And when she says we're going to have reset, she's absolutely correct. Reset's also been privy to the, re the retention of dishonestly obtained property. And it goes on there to say that uh, uh, you've got actors, rares, uh, possession. More detail is, is um, in the website. Uh, you don't have to personally handle the stolen goods to be considered in possession. So uh, she <laughs> is in possession of stolen goods. And um, the, the problem is there's not clearly enough stolen goods to go around. And um, <laughs> we are going to see huge turmoil in the Scottish public sector because the, the SNP government has been using this, this money largely from the South to buy loyalty and buy quietness and buy some sort of appearance of progress and success um, as they've made horrible decisions. And the bill is becoming due and it's going to be very, very horrible when the people that they have bought find out that uh, they've been conned. Uh, well, I'm smiling, uh, David, as uh, yeah, the definition of reset, truly uh, wonderful. But of course, it reminds me of a definition of common purpose, because I've reported over many years on a pernicious charity called Common Purpose. But I think I'm right in saying that common purpose is also a crime under uh, crime at law. So um, it's, it does seem strange that these terms get picked up. But it's also strange that when we put the news for UK Column together, we're not always talking to each other on an hour by hour basis. And I'd picked up on a Guardian headline today, which was this. Thousands of UK workers begin world's biggest trial of a four day week with work changed forever by the pandemic. There's the driver. Businesses are testing where the pilot uh, where the pilot represents a, a recognition that the new frontier for com competition is quality of life. I think I understand that sentence, but let's have a look at what's coming. So here we are. Um, more than 3,300 workers from 70 UK companies, ranging from a local chippy to large financial firms, start working a four-day week from Monday with no loss of pay in the world's biggest trial of the new working system. The pilot is running for six months and is being organised by Four Day Week Global in partnership with the think tank Autonomy. The Four Day Week campaign and researchers at Cambridge University, Oxford University and Boston College. And the trial's based on a 100-80-100 model, which is 100% of pay for 80% of the time in exchange for a commitment to maintain 100% productivity. So I was intrigued that suddenly we've got a global trial popped out of nowhere, as you can imagine, having a look at uh, a four day week. So I did a little bit of research for our viewers and listeners. Uh, this is autonomy. Now, remember, Mike, it's, it's independent, so you can yep. trust it. It's an independent, progressive research organization focuses on tackling climate change. So climate change comes first. The future of work, probably we won't have any, and economic planning, which David's just given us a good overview. And always look at the people um, because we've got a mixture of media, communications, 
London College of Communication uh, lecturer in digital economy. Um, we've got a lady working in the Gender, Sexuality and Feminine Studies program of Duke University. Quite an interesting mix of people who are now working to say that we're really going to go into a four day working week. But my question is always is, who are these people? I'm not sure I'm allowed to use the H word, but who the H are these people? Um, because they seem to have enormous power. Here's uh, Four Day Week Global with a gentleman called Andrew Barnes. And he's an entrepreneur, philanthropist. I'm having trouble with that word. Help me out, Mike. Philanthropist. Thank you very much. And uh, made a career of uh, market changing innovation and industry digitization. Now, I believe he's based in New Zealand. How does he pop up in this trial associated with UK universities? I don't know. Uh, here we've got the key. This is the engine of it. And this is the Oxford uh, University Wellbeing Research Centre. So, David, um, I think this answers part of your question. We're not too sure what well-being is, but we're spending millions, billions maybe, researching it. Uh, what you're looking on screen is actually a BT study being presented into well-being and performance at call centres. That's going to keep us fed. Uh, if we look at the people again, well, it's just fascinating because we've got a mixture of professors, government, government ministers, uh, top right, we've got a Chinese hedge fund. So that's reassuring. Uh, well, we've got all the American aircraft carriers out there uh, because of those nasty Chinese. Actually, they should be looking for the Chinese in Oxford uh, because apparently they're going to be cutting our working week to four days. Uh, we've got edu educators, entrepreneurs, and same question, can we trust them with the future? So, David, I think it's quite clear COVID-19, the pandemic that never was, is being used to kickstart the Great Reset. And as part of that Great Reset, you're either going to be on um, uh, income from the state or you're going to be working as few hours as possible. But maybe I'm just cynical. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a very strange thing, because when this was originally put forward, it was a it was a bizarre notion that came from the idea there was only so much work to go around and unemployment was caused by some people working too hard and having all the work and other people having nothing to do, right? Because work's a kind of zero-sum game. This is economic imbecility and, and doesn't have any re relationship with reality. Now it's, oh, no, no, no. It's if we work four days, the efficiency is such that you'll just produce the same amount. Now, if that's the case, you know, go to it. And why would any company not, not buy into that if it's true? I find it difficult to imagine how someone working in a chip shop can, can make as many chips if he's only there 80% of the time. But, but maybe, maybe I just don't know enough about the fish and chip business. It could well be. Look, we're, we're out of time, David, but just uh, very quickly then, Royal Naval Shipbuilding supports 15,000 Scottish jobs. Is that where they're going to send all these uh, unemployed public sector workers? Right. Most of them are scared. Let's hope, let's hope not. We need, we need people who, who work hard to build our ships. Uh, the point I'm making here is this is actually a, a, a success story such as it is. Any time the government takes money, it's destroying other jobs to make the jobs you can see. You've got to bear that in mind. But nonetheless, there is a success story here in that they're building ships and they're, and they're building more ships and it's, and it's generally being 
extremely um, well done and um, it, it contrasts with the the Scottish government taking a lot of money from people and then actually wasting it and failing to build ships. So there are things that are worse than government taking your money to build things that you wouldn't necessarily choose. It's when government takes your money and just just wastes it and, and achieves almost nothing, which is what the Scottish government has been specialising in. Yes, OK. And then, we do then, have a final slide. We do. Here it is. Uh, and this is uh, the, a man driving the, the car with uh, is marked puberty blockers, and he's just run over a teenager uh, uh, with mental health written on his back. And he says, don't worry, this is reversible. Yes, OK. And, and there's another subject. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, well, we will be doing an extra, and uh, as Brian mentioned, uh, we'll be, well, what did we say we were going to talk an extra? Oh, yes, Paddington, that's true. Paddington, Paddington Bear, Bear and the Queen. Yes. A, a lot more important subject than people may think. That's but, it. Okay, we'll end it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to our viewers in UK and overseas, and uh, just well done with all the support. It's been fantastic. If you're not a subscriber, though, perhaps you could uh, you decide to uh, sign up with us because every little counts. Thanks very much. We'll be back in a few minutes with extra time. Bye bye.